0: Hello and welcome to the OrthoPod. My name is Liam Fernando Canavan. I'm a medical student at the University of Melbourne and this is a podcast where I'll take a history from experts in orthopaedic and musculoskeletal medicine. Associate Professor Claudia Di Bella was born in Italy and gained her medical degree from the oldest medical school in the Western world at the University of Bologna and then went on to complete her orthopaedic training through one of Europe's premier specialist orthopaedic hospitals at the Rizzoli Orthopaedic Institute, also in Bologna. Nowadays living in Australia, Claudia is a fellow of the Australian Orthopaedic Association, specialising in joint replacement surgery and the complex subspecialty of orthopaedic oncology, treating bone and soft tissue tumours. Claudia is also the head of the Cartilage Regeneration Program within the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne. Buongiorno, welcome Associate Professor Di Bella. Hello. Okay, so the Olympics are on at the moment and I thought I might start with one of your passions outside of the operating theatre, water polo. To give people an idea of how good you were, as an elite junior representing Italy, you were winning European titles in a national squad that would eventually go on to win gold at the 2004 Olympics in Athens. However you made the difficult decision as a junior athlete to stop playing water polo and start your medical degree but I hear you have had some recent success in the pool.
1: Yeah well uh, well, certainly water polo is uh, probably my favorite sport together with tennis and yes I used to play when I was young that's a life ago it feels like at least and I loved playing for my team in Italy we we were yeah pretty successful. Uh, The decision of uh, of choosing medicine is probably made by the fact that I probably was already better with a knife than with a bowl. And so I, you know, I just followed where, you know, I was more, uh, hopefully, you know, become more successful, but it is true that the girls then ended up winning the, the Olympics. Um, now recently I actually have joined a group here in, uh, in Australia, um, a team we called Victoria's Secrets because um we bought in Victoria is not very well known, not as much as it is for example in New South Wales or Queensland. So they weren't expecting us to be that good but we just won the Australian Master Championship. So well, we're very happy. Yeah.
0: And who was the team that you played for in Italy?
1: It's called Horizonte Catania and uh, yeah, it's one of the, the strongest team that, uh, that is in Italy. They actually just recently won the Italian Championships. And then when I moved to Bologna, which is where I finished my, um, my medicine training, um, I played for the Radinantes Bologna, which is a very strong team in Bologna as well. And um, yeah, I just shared my, my love for sport and medicine.
0: So how has your sporting background helped you forge a successful career as a surgeon?
1: Oh, I think that sport is really important for for life in general, especially team sport. It really helps you understanding the dynamics in in society and in in life and in um, in your work group, and especially you know in in a field like um, surgery where it's not all about you, it's not all about the surgery and the surgeon because, you know, without my nursing staff, my, um, you know, techs, and, um, and everyone really involved with, uh, with the surgery, I would, wouldn't be able to do anything. So it is, um, it is a teamwork. Everything that I do is teamwork. Uh, and so having trained uh, and having played team sports I think helped.
0: Yeah, you mentioned teamwork, and you regularly give your surgical team a shout out on Twitter with hashtags. I look like a surgeon and hashtag Women in Medicine. What do these hashtags represent for you?
1: Well, look, I'm very passionate with you know about women in surgery, women in STEM, m in general, and I am a big supporter of uh, of diversity in any field, and especially in surgery, where you know in orthopedics we're about four percent women, and it's a specialty that can be done by anyone, no matter. No matter your, you know, your gender, no matter your, your, your stature, no matter your weight, no matter your, your strength, um, it's, it, you know, it's something that can be done by anyone very, very well. And so for me, it's important to support that and to, to make, to give awareness and, and um, get the juniors to realize that, you know, no matter what you like, you can do it. If you're passionate about it, if, if you think that that is what you're good at and you want to pursue this dream, just do it. It's absolutely fine.
0: Yeah, I mean, there is objective evidence out there supporting this. In 2012, the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery published the study Women in Orthopaedics, Way Behind the Number Curve, where the authors addressed some of the misconceptions around the low percentage of female orthopaedic surgeons, citing how lifestyle factors are no more of a deterrent for women than they are for men when choosing a specialty. How is it for you having kids and working as a surgeon at the same time?
1: Oh, look, everything is doable. Uh, it's about... Time management and uh, trying to, you know, put your energy where they are required in that specific day, in that specific moment. So really optimizing your um, your your energy uh, expenditure somehow. But it is absolutely doable. So many many women, you know, junior doctors come to me and say, "Oh, look, you know, I've been told that." I can't do this if I want a family or or it's going to be really difficult because I need to spend many hours in you know in, during the training in the hospital and it, it upsets me and it actually makes me angry because it's the same thing should be said to a man that wants to start a family you know we are in this together and there should be equality i think everywhere so everything every time i say to, to the juniors is, well, the first thing that you want is to have quality in your family and, you know, and, and be really sharing the load and the love and everything because, you know, we're all in this together. And then it's it's a decision that is made, you know, with your partner or with your family. Uh, but there is nothing, there's nothing that should, or no one that should ever tell you what you can and you can't do. And, you know, just follow your dreams is certainly doable. And, you know... Th- I have two young kids. They're pretty happy, I think. They're living a good life. Um, I spend a lot of time with them. My weekends, I don't turn the, the, the computer on. I don't I try not to, unless I'm on call, answer emails that are you know, work-related because I give all my time and my, and my energy to them. And then during the week, you know, they know that I work, but it's a, it's, you know, it's, I think it's a good balance.
0: Will we see your children playing water polo at all anytime soon?
1: Well, there is a video on uh, on my Facebook page with my son tr- starting to trying to. He actually likes that on on TV, and uh, he's an okay swimmer, so maybe. Um, well, I have to say that he likes playing with any kind of bowl, so <laughs> <at> the moment <laughs> it will be a difficult difficult choice. But yeah, I would love that. But it's uh, you know they they will do what they love to do, and um, as long as they play some sport, because I think. Uh, that really forges you and helps you in in life in the future.
0: Yeah, with all the work that you do as a mother, a surgeon, a teacher, a researcher and a Victoria's Secret, time (laughs) management is obviously something that you're good at, um, whether you like it or not. (laughs) Um, But, you know, could you just speak a little bit more about how you sort of prioritise each of these roles differently?
1: Well, look, sometimes it's difficult and, you know... (sighs) Some people say, oh, you know, you write schedules and you, you know, you try and put everything in your in your diary. And that's true. I try and do that. And I set specific times for research for, um, you know, not just the private practice or the um, or, you know, the, the operating times I try and set time for other things as well. But it is a juggle and sometimes it's difficult and sometimes you just need to prioritize. So um, there there are weeks when I'm really flat out and other weeks where instead I can recharge my batteries depending on, you know, the commitments that you have. I took a while to understand this and to accept this and now I just go with the flow often. But yeah, obviously there is a background of organization that has to be there because otherwise I sort of play catch up and it's always if, he, if he's a 24 7 it's difficult
0: yeah one thing i wanted to ask you about specifically is lunch because in the time that i've spent in in italy lunch is very important it's very different to here people go home from work and they eat yeah. with their family or they go to a trattoria and so yeah. on but here is very different and for someone as busy as you how do you prioritize your your lunch
1: well, I do a big cook up during the weekend, I have to say, especially recently, I'm trying to get fit again. So um, I do I do prepare uh, my, my lunches for the week. Um, and they're all stuck in the fridge. I look like a little bit of a control freak, actually on that now. Um, but I like it. And that's and that's something that helps me managing managing my time. But otherwise, you know, it, it, it is it is a 10 minutes 15 minutes break that you try and find during the day and i try and set it as well because you sort of recharge a bit of the batteries ready for the for the afternoon session whatever it is and also you know and you only be i think uh, you only have been um up in the north if you go down in the south it's a, it's a proper three hour break <laughs> now we're talking about you know 12 to three o'clock where you go you go home you cook for the family everyone eats and it's not just eating a sandwich. We're talking about pasta, the second meal, which is you know, meat, and then the dessert, and then you go back to work. So that's, that's another level <laughs> of a break. Um, so no, I don't, I don't do that. I don't think that I would have been good at doing that.
0: <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, we did mention the north and food as well, and I wanted to ask you about Bologna. Um, that's where you spent the formative years of your medical and surgical training, and that's for great. me personally, that's my favorite city in Italy. And I would love to hear what it was like for you to train at the University of Bologna. And then also, could you explain to the audience how important it is the Rizzoli Institute and and what it was like training there?
1: I absolutely adore Bologna. Bologna is a university city, so you breathe and you live within the university. Half of the population in the city is young university students. So it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, environment, really an atmosphere um also the level and the quality of the teaching um is is exceptional is uh, one of the best in europe for sure um the Rizzoli, the reason actually why I went I moved to Bologna from from Catania which is down in Sicily was the Rizzoli so the Rizzoli is a, a orthopedic only hospital um it's a big hospital and every ward every unit is about one part of the body so you would have the shoulder unit you have the hip revision unit you have the foot and ankle unit and then there is the orthopedic oncology unit which is where you know i fell in love with this with this discipline it is a fantastic teaching hospital is where you can see the absolute best probably some of the best in the world um, treating patients people are referred to the Rizzoli from all around Europe and i still call it my home And I'm very lucky to still call it my home and have very good friends and mentors still there.
0: Could you tell me what is the Asinelli Tower?
1: The Asinelli Tower. The Asinelli Tower is a is a tower right in the middle of Bologna, right in the centre. There's two towers, and one is uh, is a bit flipped. It's not as famous as the Pisa one, but uh, uh, it's still not straight. Um, and it's a tower that overlooks the old Bologna and it was built by the Medici at the time where you know, there was uh, a lot of competition about who was the most powerful family in ah, the city okay. of, um, of Bologna. <laughs> so the tallest towers are the ones that are built by the, the most um, you know, powerful uh, families. And the Azinelli is one of those. And uh, when you go all the way up there, it's many stairs, it's a beautiful view of those you know, red roofs of Bologna and the Portici. But you must not go there um, until, until something very important happens in your medical training.
0: <laughs> so you have to finish your degree before you can go to the top.
1: That's true. Otherwise, it's very much bad luck. And as Italians, you know, we believe in uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> in luck. And so, um, yeah, don't go up there up until you finish.
0: will Okay, I'll, make, I'll wait till I graduate before I go to the top.
1: <laughs> Good idea.
0: So you mentioned that it's Oli and how important it is with um, orthopaedic surgery. Specifically, that's where you fell in love with orthopaedic oncology. This is not a subspecialty that many people know about. Um, certainly where I am at the Austin Hospital, it's not something that we do there. There's only one place in, in Melbourne, in Victoria, and that's at St. Vincent's at the um, Soft Tissue and Bone Tumor Clinic. Could you talk about, you know, what is orthopaedic oncology? What's, what are some of the things you do and the patients that you see
1: yeah, it's a very little niche, you're right. It's very rare having a bone tumour or a soft tissue tumour. They're called sarcomas, the malignant ones. They're very rare. Um, you know, you've got almost the same chances of winning Tatsaloto, uh on getting this kind of tumours. So many GPs, they, they, they don't even see any of these tumours in their whole career. So that's why um, there are centralised centres around Australia um, in Victoria, we are at St Vincent's Hospital. We are only four surgeons in Victoria and Tasmania that deal with these, uh, these tumours. And we are just over a dozen in all Australia. So orthopedic oncology deals with um, benign and malignant um, tumours that affect bones and soft tissues. And um, they're very aggressive. So, you know, osteosarcomas, Ewing sarcomas, chondrosarcomas, all the names are in Latin, you know, they they start based on uh, the the tissue of origin. And they're very aggressive. Um, And the treatment for them is usually typically multidisciplinary. What it means is there is surgery, but often together with surgery, we need to do either chemotherapy or radiotherapy or a combination of both. Um, And often surgeries are very demolitive because... Uh, being very aggressive tumors when we remove these tumors surgically we cannot leave anything behind we can't just scrape it out because otherwise they come back with a vengeance so uh, resections we call them wide resections um, and we remove the tumor surrounded by um, a healthy cuff of tissue all around that which is can be bone or any other kind of soft tissue Um, so it can be very demolitive and reconstruction is um, often a challenge
0: yeah, so reconstruction is one of your areas of expertise, what's called limb salvage surgery. And in the past, the treatment of osteosarcoma was was amputation. But nowadays, with expert surgeons such as yourself, um, you can use these things called megaprostheses and allografts or autografts. Um, could you talk about the approach to doing limb salvage surgery?
1: Yeah, well, I have to say, first of all, that I can't take the credit for, this, uh, for these advantages. Actually, the credit was is, is to be given to chemotherapy, so before before the chemotherapy, um, the type of chemotherapy that we give now, which is already more than fifty years old, the rate of uh, uh, amputations for this kind of sarcomas was extremely high. But now, thanks to chemotherapy, uh, the results are the same, but we can do limb sparing surgery. So we can resect the tumor and then reconstruct. Now, depending on where the tumor is, um, we have different options for reconstructions it can be a biological reconstructions using as you were saying allograft or autograft so pieces of bone for example that come either from the same body of the patient or from the bone bank um, and reconstruct with you know metal plates and rods or otherwise we use prosthesis and prosthesis can be Either, you know, the, the, the ones that we find on the shelf, um, which are we, I call them, uh, you know, prosthesis on steroids because it's not just replacing the joint, but it's replacing part of the bone as well. Or otherwise, sometimes they are custom made. So, for example, if you have a large tumor in the pelvis, it's really difficult to reconstruct. And the only way to reconstruct that sometimes is uh, uh, 3D printing a prosthesis that matches exactly the kind of defect that you're going to be left uh, with once you remove the tumour uh, and this can only be custom made patient specific um, and so sometimes we uh, you know we rely on these um, pretty you know high level uh, reconstructions um, that if they don't fail because of infections or breaking they really can give quality of life back to the patient not just the quantity because the tumour is not there but also the quality of life that they, that
0: they they deserve this 3d printing stuff is incredible um uh, we will go back to that in a little bit um, i just wanted to touch on the multi- multi-disciplinary approach that you mentioned because as we were talking about at the start as a water polo player you're working in a team and oncology treatment is much the same so um how important is it to work in the team and who are some of the people that help you along the way to treat bone and soft tissue tumors
1: look look um I, teamwork is key um, there is no way I would ever be able to, to treat a patient just by myself uh, for a malignant tumor. Um, we do have our multidisciplinary meeting every week uh, where we're all in the same room or in the same zoom um, and the surgeons, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, radiologists, pa- pathologists. So even we, we look at the uh, anatomical pathology slides as well. Uh, there is the nursing staff. We are all in the same room discussing patient after patient because there is not a one, one size fits all for this kind, especially for these kind of tumors that are rare and sometimes unpredictable. So often we discuss and we try and find the best possible solution for that specific person, knowing, you know, pros and cons of of all the different treatments um, and try and find really what fits the best for that person. So without that, I don't think that we would have the results that we, we actually thankfully have here in Victoria in Australia, which are some of the best in the world.
0: So the patients are very lucky. They've got lots of doctors looking after them and working to help them
1: they do they often don't know or they don't appreciate you know the, the amount of work that is behind every single one of them and every single treatment um, but we're all there are many many brains uh, thinking at the same time and then delivering a, a solution
0: yeah I hope it's not as violent as some of the water polo matches <laughs> in some of those well, meetings
1: sometimes- there are disagreements um, but no no black eyes thankfully
0: (laughs) oh that's good so outside of the multidisciplinary meetings and the operating theater you're the team leader of the cartilage regeneration program at the university of melbourne which is where you use the technology we were talking about before 3d printing and tissue engineering how do you actually do this futuristic work and what are some of the challenges involved of doing it
1: well, once again, it's teamwork. You know, I'm I'm just a surgeon in that, and that's true. I lead that group, but the reality is that uh, we all come with our um, experience. So in the group that we have, our biologists, the leaders, you know, Serena Duki and Carmino Nofrillo, who, by the way, they're Italians as well, from Bologna, well, who I met in Bologna and I stole from my <laughs> Bologna team. Um, we have bioengineers. We have... Uh, Um, uh, biochemists material engineers so we're all a group of people that each one with their own expertise puts their brain into trying to solve a clinical problem or a surgical problem Um, so it's um, it's something that you know uh, it's working is working very well now we are really getting close to commercialization and to finally have this um, some, some product in the market to Try and target a niche of of orthopedics that does not have a surgical solution yet, or a solution that really works uh, realistically for everyone. Um, But it is teamwork, and it's something that um, I try and again fit in my in my diary to to um, to get to get a solution somehow.
0: What's the biopen?
1: So the BioPen, which now is called Acceldapen because we're going into the commercial pathway, is a, a 3D printer or an extrusion printer that can be handheld by the surgeon and delivers a combination of a material that is made a combination by a combination of hydrogel and stem cells that come from the patient. So the goal for that would be to repair some Articular cartilage damage in patients, for example, young athletes that had a, an injury in their cartilage and regenerate healthy, long lasting articular cartilage. And that is the niche of, of the orthopedic that I was talking about that does not have a solution yet, because at the moment we use other techniques like microfractures or um, of grafts that really don't last long. So this is a an engineering solution for a surgical problem and the only way to come out with this solution was to really have multiple brains all together working together uh, starting from the problem and trying and and find different ways of solving that by using different kind of of technologies one of which is uh, 3d bioprinting
0: so you mentioned cartilage Um, can you just explain The difficulties of that in in layman's terms and and why it's such an advantage to be able to regenerate the cartilage so
1: cartilage does not have blood does not have nerve endings doesn't you know it's it's a it's a tissue that cannot repair by itself so whilst you know if you injure your muscle you you heal with scar and at the end of the day more or less it still works with the cartilage the damage in there will only progress and can only progress towards arthritis so if you get an injury and you're very young and we, we don't have a solution to recreate that tissue that is very important for the load sharing within the joint, what will happen inevitably is that you will get arthritis. And if you have arthritis when you're in your 30s or 40s, it is very debilitating. And many of the activities that you would like to do for work or for enjoyment you will end up not being able to do so. It is it is a it is a problem um, that, and also you know, with the with the increase of the number of people that have arthritis later on in life, we're trying to decrease, um, you know, people that need a joint replacement. So. That is, that, that's the reason why that was our goal. Also, because at the beginning, we thought, oh, well, that's a simple tissue to regenerate. You know, we don't have to think about too much in terms of complexity. At the end of the day, the vast majority of cartilage is made of water and one single type of cells. So we thought it's very simple. And then obviously, once you start digging in, you realize that it's very complex. But that is an example of how 3D bioprinting and 3D um, you know, bioengineering uh, bio can really help in regenerating tissues. So we have branches within the BioFab 3D that actually are looking, for example, at muscle, neuromuscular junction um, and other tissues or bone um, and other tissues that are within the musculoskeletal system, uh, because I think we get getting close to understand how to recapitulate some of the um of the biology that we need.
0: Yeah, you mentioned the biofab three D, that's the laboratory at St Vincent's Hospital where you do all these incredible things. And my question initially was how soon will 3D printing become a reality in the operating theatre, but it sounds like it already is.
1: Well, it is. Certainly 3D printing is a reality. We use a lot of prostheses that are 3D printed. We use 3D printing for uh, cutting guides, uh, for example, um, you know, patient-specific instruments. So 3D printing is already something that we use almost on a daily basis. In terms of 3D, bioprinting is a little bit more complex because of TGA and, and some regulatory pathways that we need to follow. But we're very close, uh, and the BioFab 3D with the ACMD, which is the new uh, bioengineering um, building that is now being built uh, or is very close to be built soon at St. Vincent, um, that is exactly uh, the goal uh, that we that we have, which is really uh, moving towards new ways of, of dealing with old problems.
0: So, lastly. Um, Each year, the Australian Orthopaedic Association's Orthopaedic Women's Link run the OWL essay competition, which is for female medical students, interns, and pre-vocational doctors that are not yet on the orthopaedic training program. Now, the competition runs for all of August, and the topic this year is give a girl a hammer. Now, if I was going to write this essay, and if you gave me a hammer, then everything would probably just look like a nail. (laughs) But what if I gave you a hammer?
1: well if you gave me a hammer i probably would say give me a smaller one the reason for that is uh you know in, in in orthopedics a lot of often people think that you know if you're strong you're good if you're big you're good um but the reality is that it's not about it's not all about strength and force it's actually about technique so often i actually ask for ask for smaller instruments and um things that are more you know delicate because I I'm not a big person. I'm, I'm small and I'm not very strong for sure. Um, so often, But often I do things that are actually quite heavy physically um, and the only way for doing them is with technique. So if you give me a hammer, it needs to be a small one um, because I need to be able to use it properly.
0: <laughs> okay, thank you, Associate Professor Dibella.
1: My pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the OrthoPod. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by the handle at SomaGradGroup or on our website, SomaGradGroup.com. See you in the next episode.